Unless God steps in, here's the truth that we all know. We know this well in this church. You know why? Because we open our Bibles and we read it. Unless God steps in, everyone is over here in the sinner camp, right? Does it matter if you wear the name tag sinner or if you wear the name tag saint? Mm -mm. Why? Because your reputation with other people, what you think about yourself, what other individuals tell you about yourself is not the most important truth about you. You know what it is? It's what God thinks about you. It's what God says about you. God's your designer. God's your creator. God's the one who informs you of what's really most true about you. Not what other people say about you. Not what you say about yourself. Okay? So in reality, what we have is we have sinners and Jesus. <laughs> That's it. But in the story, we separate them out as sinners Saints or sinners who call themselves saints are known as saints and Jesus. That's the cast of characters that we see. Do not miss this. Do you see that the sinner camp is drawing near, coming near to Jesus to do what? To listen to him. Sinners are drawing close to Jesus to listen to him. Uh, every age in this room, hear me carefully. This ought to really, really stir something in us to think, you know what? This Jesus that we're being taught about, this Jesus that I'm getting to know, is one who, um, who, who seeks out and is sought out by those in our city, those in our society, who most people avoid. That's a, that's a monumental truth that ought to lodge deeply in our minds. Because many of us are taught and many of us feel like when we're doing our worst, what should we do? We should run and hide from Jesus. Most of us have been taught and most of us feel that when things are going bad, we should be on a timeout off in the corner. Go sit in your shame until you can get yourself together and then get around Jesus. Something in Jesus communicated to the most needy people on the planet at the time and come and draw near to me. Listen to me. Does it make you wonder what he was saying in those moments? This is huge. Jesus attracts the people most people avoid. Secondly, the fact that Jesus receives and eats with them. How do we know that? Because that's what the complaint was, right? The grumbling Pharisees said he receives them and he eats with them. Know this, that eating a meal in the Middle East to this day is way more than refueling. It's not just, hey, I need to replenish some calories. Ron, you need to replenish some calories. Let's replenish calories together. That's not what a meal is in our society. But if you take American meal sharing and you sort of like ratchet it up by like a degree of 80% or something, that's Middle East table fellowship. So to say that he ate with them was way more than just what, what we might think of as grabbing a quick bite to eat. Now, last chapter, chapter 14, Jesus told stories, Ben talked talk about this, about sinners being open to eating with him and others finding fault with him and even making excuses as to why they couldn't come to the feast. And here, Jesus is living it out. I never saw this before, but Luke 14 is almost like prophetic. Hey, there's going to be sinners that are going to get in on this, and those of you who, who, who you know, should be here and you're invited to, you don't show up. He's living this out in Luke 15. Two tiny little verses that, that reveal that Luke 14 was more than stories. I love how one commentator puts it. He says this, in the kingdom, those who know they don't belong are the ones who won't miss out. Don't you love that? 
Those who know they don't, like I'm convinced I shouldn't be here. You're the one who gets in. Eating with Jesus, being received by Jesus. So what keeps people from God? In a word, here it is, ready? Pride. What keeps people from God? It's pride. And here is what prompted the stories. The grumbling Pharisees and scribes, the religious rule keepers, were displaying a particular brand of pride. And this is why Jesus tells four lost and found stories. Any one of you, you don't have to raise your hand. This might be a little self-revealing. But any of you get in trouble for complaining? I mean, parents tend to try to put the kibosh on this, right? We teach our kids, we mentor our kids, we, we show our kids, we try to model to our kids. Don't complain, don't be a grumbler. Bosses reprimand employees for this. Hey, you're killing the culture. You're a, you're a great performer, but you're a grumbler. And we don't keep grumblers around this company. You've got to change that. Yesterday, we, uh, we explored some, some new open space that was, that was out and about. And uh, little Tate had a fever last week, and so he's in the way back. You can see him. Not the shadowy man following us. That's kind of weird. Didn't notice that until this morning. But, but the little guy, the little guy in the back. And so we're just out exploring the, the beautiful countryside, and I'm walking up ahead with Eli, and we're just cruising along, and I hear a comment going behind me between my wife and my nine-year-old daughter. And they're talking about this newly opened open space, and she, and she was trying to get her head around, well, whose land is this? And we were saying it's, it's still being grazed on by cattle, so someone owns this land. We're opening gates and closing gates to make sure the cattle stay. And yet, we as the public get to use this land. And as they're talking, um, all of a sudden, the parents burst out in a rousing version of, this land is your land, oh, this land is my land. We did the whole song. We just belted it out. The kids were a little confused, a little scared. They didn't understand the song until we got to the chorus. Like, oh, we know this one, so they joined in. Now, sometimes an innocent conversation about whose land this is prompts a song, right? Sometimes grumbling Pharisees prompts a story. And that's exactly what's going on in Luke 15. Jesus tells these lost and found stories because of what was going on in front of him. So before we get to the stories, uh, let's think about this kind of pride uh, that, that hurts us that we see on display. We've been calling in Luke the good doctor. That's sort of been our, uh, our theme, uh, if you will, and that Jesus is the good doctor. Like any good doctor, Jesus is telling us how to thrive. Not just survive, not just get by, but say, here's how you thrive. Here's what you should avoid. Here's what you should do. Let me diagnose you and, and show you um, how you're doing. Here's something interesting about the church. In fact, if you read the Bible, many of the letters, did you know that many of the letters in the Bible in the New Testament are written to the church because they were so messed up? It was so messy and bad that Paul and other writers would have to write to the church and correct all the, the mistakes that were going on. Here's what's true of the community of Jesus. Ready? Any sin that is outside the community of Jesus, any sin, begins to seep inside the community of Jesus. So all of the junk that's out there 
These realities we just sang is that, God, you rescued me from that. You pulled me from that. You cleansed me from that. I'm now forgiven of that. I am free of that. I don't have to walk in that anymore. And yet, any sin that's outside the community of Jesus eventually seeps inside of the community of Jesus. Okay? So don't be mistaken. Don't, don't be shocked when you have people sinning inside the church. We should never be shocked by that. But here's a curious thing. There are certain sins that, that are cultivated and grown inside the community of Jesus that, that almost never get exported outside the community of Jesus. So almost any sin you can think of out there seeps into the church. Just read your New Testament. It's there. But there's a brand of sin. There are some sins that start here. This place of healing is the place you contract these diseases, and they don't tend to get exported. And you know what might top the list? Self-righteousness. Spiritual superiority and smugness. Scriptural superiority and smugness. Do you know why it doesn't export? Because of this. You have to care about things like honor and righteousness and scriptural knowledge to even care one bit about who's better or worse at it, right? So that spiritual sin seed gets planted in the soil of the church and it grows up and it doesn't tend to leave the church because people outside these walls couldn't care less about your spiritual superiority. You can find Leviticus before me. Woohoo! Good job. I don't care. You know who cares? We care. You know who's made to feel small that they can't find Leviticus or didn't know Leviticus was even a book in the Bible? People in here can care. So spiritual smugness is the brand of pride that Jesus is going after with the Pharisees and the scribes. It's really key that we get this, okay? Spending a lot of time before we get to the stories because what's happened is you're going to get to the stories, you're going to immediately think of other lost things. And I want us to remember, I want us to see, this is why the song broke out. This is why the stories were being spoken of. A place and a context and a cast of characters really, really mattered to why Jesus was bringing up these lost and found stories. Now here's what's crazy. This unique brand of pride is so deadly because of this. Ready? It's near impossible to diagnose this sin in ourselves. It's almost impossible. What happens is this. Most people are certain that they can spot self-righteousness. In fact, they're like, I can tell right now, that person, that person, that person, certainly that person. That person might be okay. They're certain they could spot it in others, and they are certain, man, if that ever showed up in me, I'd squash that thing like a bug. They're wrong. It shows up in the human heart, and we ourselves have a very difficult time spotting it. This is the importance, friends, of living in community. This is the importance of, of being tied into a church family. Even in a tiny church like ours, you can slip in and slip out. You can be as known or unknown as you choose to be, can't you? It's so important that we get into community and even invite others to speak truth into our life. Jesus knows that this is a particularly deadly sin, and so he and he loves the spiritually smug, and so he tells them, 
lost and found stories. I began to make a list of lost and found stories. You know that lost and found stories are some of our favorites? If the box office and your DVD collection, the ones you actually own, are any indication, lost and found stories are some of our all-time favorite stories. You know, like all good stories, they borrow their power from the story. We just watched on some vacation time, we watched some of the Narnia series on film. You know, C.S. Lewis, he didn't set out to teach about Jesus, about redemption, about those themes. He didn't set out to write a very specific allegory. He set out to write a really, really good story. One time, uh, a child wrote to him. And this child was very, very distraught. And said, it said, uh, said Mr. Lewis, I'm, I'm petrified. I don't know what to do. This child said, I'm, I'm finding myself being more in love with Aslan than I am with Jesus. And C.S. Lewis wisely, graciously handled that, wrote back to the child, and he said something of this nature. He said, don't worry, precious child. The very traits, the very things you love about Aslan are there in abundance in Jesus. Is Jesus really a lion? No. He doesn't have a furry mane. He doesn't have sharp teeth. He doesn't walk around on four claws and have a long tail and swish around. Is Jesus really a lamb? Bad theology. No, he's not. We just saying, you are a lion, you are a lamb. These are ideas, these are mental things that point to it, right? Any good story, if you set out to write a really, really good story, you will find things that are true of your own experience. And you go, that's just true. That just rings true in me. In fact, I would say this, a well-told lost and found story brings true to our experience, but more than that, a good lost and found st- a story stirs things in our soul. We find ourselves crying, even if we're not criers. Our family looks at us, we're like, there's something in my eye, never mind, just keep watching the movie. What's that all about? It might stir memories of us that are super surprising to us. It might stir longings in us that we go, oh, I so hope for that, I hope that's still true. Because a man I've lost in this life. So a good lost and found story like really can stir memories, feelings, or actions that actually surprise us. Here's some fun homework from church this week. Ready? Write down and think about some of your favorite lost and found stories or I'm in peril, help, and rescue stories. You take those two categories, those two genres, man, they are everywhere in our movies and books. If you're a movie watcher, Go back and watch one of those movies. Go back and watch one of those. And sort of just intentionally be open to, say, God, would you help me pay attention to what's stirring me? Help me to actually watch this movie, not just for entertainment value, and not to blindly cry at certain parts, but to go, huh, what is it about that character that I so identify with? What is it about that storyline or that reveal or whatever goes on in that movie that I so long would happen in my own story. A lot of times we enjoy other people's stories because we're trying to give meaning to our own story. We're trying to figure out, God, what, what kind of story do I find myself in? I hope the next chapter is better than this chapter because this is a hard time. This is a dark season. So we watch movies and we read books. And I think there's power. Jesus is the master at drawing people in and doing this. Now we're going to do something a little abnormal for church, because we often don't do this. But we're going to watch a little short video, and I just want you to enjoy it. So 
This is uh, from a company called Pixar, Good Storytellers. Pixar, how do they do that in like five minutes? There's a lot in that story. Here's something, no matter what else may have drawn out from that, we cheer a good restoration moment in a movie. We see those things being replaced and found, and we, we cheer it on. Now, we have our very own lost and found in this church. Did you know that? Here it is. It's been sitting right under your noses. You didn't even see it. This lives back in the green room, we call it, where the band meets uh, between services. And this often holds our coffee and does other things. And when that Pixar short was found, and I thought about our chest that lives back there, and then I'm rummaging through it a little bit, and lo and behold, we have we have our very own little visual for this one, okay? So, so there it is. Oh, watch this. There we go. So that's going to just remind you a little bit of, uh, of restoration and hope that, uh, that bullies can change, okay? Now here's an actual action item. Maybe as a spiritual act of worship, maybe an application out of the sermon will be nothing more than to walk over to this tub and take your stuff home. Okay? Um, this, is, this is one of my favorites. Some child's life is in danger right now because they left it at church. I'm not even sure what event we did that had, that had this here. Um, but we have, uh, we have a lot of stuff. Um, if this is yours, there's a lot of travel mugs and water bottles. Okay? Um, you can, as a spiritual act of worship, you can reunite with your travel mug. Um, you can even wash the inside of the cup twice as good as the outside. That would be some spiritual teaching for yourself. Okay? And it would rid us of having to take all this stuff to savers. Okay? So that's going to be sitting up here. You're welcome to come rummage through it. It's not a secondhand store, so don't just grab stuff. Um, but find your things and bring it home. So don't miss this. No matter if you're the bully in that story as a kid on the playground or the one being picked on, you find yourself cheering restoration. What Jesus does with four stories is this. He lures grumpy, crumbling Pharisees into that moment. Into cheering for, yes, it's good when things are lost and when they get found again. Okay? Okay, so we're going to read these stories now, and, um, and I, I want us keeping that idea in mind. All right, verse 3 says this, So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country, and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you that there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having um, ten silver coins, if she loses one, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, Jesus says, I tell you, there will be there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. 
Last week, at the end of chapter 14, Jesus is addressing crowds. You know what crowds need to hear? The crowds need to sort of have their enthusiasm for following Jesus tempered with the reality of following Jesus. Jesus puts this idea before them. If you want part of me and keep the rest, you don't get any of me. Following Jesus is an all-or-nothing venture. That was the message to the crowds. The message to the Pharisees is exactly opposite. The message the Pharisees already had down was how much it cost, how good you had to be, all that you had to deny and sacrifice, and guess we're at the top of the list of the all-stars of that? Them! The message that the Pharisees needed was not the high cost of following Jesus. They pridefully thought that they were good. And Jesus, being the loving doctor that he is, exposes their pride. And he is saying to them, God is merciful to sinners. God loves and goes after and carries home and rejoices at those who you're grumbling about. God's love and rejoicing is for all who would be found by him. In the story, and today, you know who are most in danger? It's the 99 that think they're righteous. Those who think they are not lost never, ever, ever listen for or hear the call of being found as being for them. Ever. This holds pretty true for today's day and age. Once on my lunchtime, I'd invite you to do this. Go to YouTube sometime and look up Ray Comfort or Way of the Master. What he does, him and his crew go out and they go to public places and they just do little man-on-the-street interviews. And he always, he always has the same similar little formula. He basically grabs someone. He might take like a neo-Nazi, an old grandma, uh, some young college kid. He'll just, he talks to anyone. Usually at the Santa Monica Pier. And he looks at him and he says, do you think you're a good person? Guess what 99% of the people say? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. And he just says this. You ever told any lies? Yeah, I've told, I've told some lies. How many? Over a lifetime? I don't, I don't know. I can't count. He says, what do you call someone who lies? What is it? A liar. You ever stolen anything regardless of its value? Yeah, I've stolen stuff. What do you call someone who steals? A thief. He says, have you ever taken God's name in vain? Then he'll spell out, said G-O-D as a swear word. Yeah, I do it all the time. But God says that's a very serious offense. Have you ever looked at a woman to lust for her? Some are smug enough to say, yeah, I'm doing it right now. He then says this, he says, well, by your own admission, according to the law of God, you're a lying, thieving, blaspheming, adulterer at heart. Now on judgment day, do you think that you would be, be found guilty or innocent before a judge? This short exchange I just did kind of undoes people. It's powerful to watch them go, I suppose, I suppose I'd be found guilty. And he says, well, I've just walked you through four of the Ten Commandments. The law of God. And you, by your own admission, have found yourself guilty on four counts. And many times over. You see, people see themselves as good. People see themselves as the 99 righteous sheep who, who don't need anyone to go looking for them. 
And here's the really scary thing. A lot of them go to church. A lot of them value church. All brands and stripes of churches. A lot of them are the volunteers and the people doing really, really good stuff in our city. The 99 are probably the most endangered people on the planet. When you compare yourself, and if you insist on comparing yourself to other people that you choose to compare yourself with, you're in grave danger. If you and I will consistently come back to comparing ourselves with God and the standard of righteousness that he has laid out, we're on the, we're on the verge or on the process of getting found of getting saved. This self-perception, I would call it self-deception, of being good and safe makes people miss out on being found by Jesus. Here's the good news. The good news is not that God loves the righteous. There is no such thing. The good news is that God is merciful, restorative, and has steadfast love that extends to all who would draw near to listen to him, to be received by him, and to eat with him. The very people in our story that are the notorious sinners and tax collectors. We had a new neighbor when we first moved into the place that we live right now. And early on, he just we got talking and he said, what do you do? I said, well, actually, I passed through the church down the street. He just started laughing. I go, is that funny? <laughs> what did I say? And he goes, no, it's not that. I said, well, what is it? He goes, you know, my brother's a pastor. Uh, he said, I just had this experience, and that person let me know they were a Christian. They're a new person in my life. And now God's got a minister living next door to me. Here's his words. He said, God is surrounding me. I said, man, you better just submit and give in right now. He knows where you live. <laughs> Isn't it interesting? This guy, by his own admission, would say, I'm lost. I'm not in the fold. He didn't identify as one of us, but he saw the picture. So, man, God is closing his circle in around me. He was on his way to salvation, in my mind. I look at that and I go, man, that's a good conversation to have because he's beginning to see himself that God is searching for him. Here is a humbling but key truth. Ready? Sheep contribute nothing to their rescue except being lost in the first place. Think about it. Here's the correlation for us. Ready? I contribute nothing to my salvation whatsoever except for the fact that I'm lost. That's it. Seeing that, understanding that, being lost is what I contribute to my salvation. Consider the Pharisees' plan of salvation. Here's the Pharisees' plan of salvation. God loves those that we think he should love. It's those who are... Um, Upstanding, decent, law-abiding people. Now, if that's their plan of salvation, here's the shocking truth, is that none get the love and rejoicing of God then. Not even them. This standard that they think that they're holding to, uh, they, they wouldn't delight in them because they aren't as righteous as they think that they are. In fact, these people don't exist. Any of you ever try to find a rainbow unicorn pegasus? Um, I actually thought I saw one eating at my counter the other day, um, and I realized it was actually my daughter, okay? If you ever, ever look for a rainbow unicorn pegasus, you will realize they don't exist. 
Even if you dress up as one, even if you insist on everyone calling you by your new pharisaical name, even if you put all your energy into always living as a rainbow unicorn pegasus, it doesn't change one cell of your makeup as to who you really are. The righteous, I'm good, already healthy, already thriving individual is a myth. You do not exist. The person in your life you're thinking of right now, it's a myth. They don't exist. And until we get our heads around them, we have nothing of need for a God who helps the lost, for a God who heals the sick and wounded. You see, God's love is for the lost, the struggling, the sick, the broken, the beat down, the addicted. God loves sinners. He goes to great lengths to search for them, and then he throws a party when he finds them. Aren't you glad Pharisees don't get to make up the plan of salvation? Aren't you glad your previous younger self and your ideas about what salvation would look like didn't come true? I rest all the time, and I return all the time to say, God, I'm glad your plan is what's, is what's in effect. Because I wouldn't have even known what I was asking for in my younger days. Next week, we're going to look at the prodigal son, and we're going, to, we're going to tie this story a little bit into this story. So in some ways, this is a setup for, for the following week. This is a son who was lost, found, reunited, which resulted in rejoicing. When you take together these first three stories, you see some powerful things. One is that salvation math builds on itself. We have one sheep out of 100. We have one coin out of 10. Then we have one son out of two. Do you hear the news kind of tightening? Kind of getting more and more critical. We also have this much of the text on possessions and animals. And we have this much of the text on people. Do you know why? People last forever. People matter to God more by far than the animal kingdom and then stuff. So it makes sense that we'd spend that much more time on people. We also see an increasing prompting or, or a, a prompting of rejoicing in the stories. But where the story turns, where, where it has this surprise ending is this. Jesus gets people head around a lost pet, a lost possession, and then a lost son, and gets everyone in agreement that says, does that deserve a party? Absolutely it does. And then there's the fourth story. It's a lost and found story that concludes with what? The older brother. Right? We'll get to this next week. But the father had two sons. It's not the prodigal son. It's really the prodigal sons. It's just that one's out in the field. And what does Jesus do with the story? Here's the technique he employs. Rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. In fact, it's actually not just a lost and found story. Lost and found and reunited and rejoicing. Sheep, yes. Lost, found, reunited and rejoicing. Coin, absolutely. In fact, the logic of that doesn't make sense. You may spend more on the party celebrating the one sheep than what the sheep is worth. You get to the sun. Lost, found, reunited with the father, rejoicing. The very last story, the older brother in the story is this. Lost, found. He's not out of the father's knowledge or, or sight, right? But it's dot, dot, dot. How will the story end? Will he reunite and have rejoicing? 
Or will he just remain out in the field, super close to the party, super close to the celebration and the father and the family, but out there sulking, out there complaining, out there grumbling and murmuring? He leaves the story unfinished because here's what it does for us. A, if we're we're sensitive to what God might be doing, it might be telling us, man, we are the ones in that story. We're the ones who feel so close to it, but we can't ever get in on it. Maybe it's because of our own self-righteous pride that thinks we're already good. It leaves the story unfinished because it's an invitation to enter into the story. All right, that's a little preview of next week. Let me close with this. Come as you are, but what? Don't stay that way. Come as you are, but don't stay that way. You know what's so cool about teaching through the scriptures verse by verse is this. Last week... It was sticker shock. It was, there's a high cost to following Jesus. You can't stay where you are. You know what it would be saying? At the end of Luke 14, it would say, don't stay that way. Then you get to Luke 15, and it says this, but come as you are. There's going to be a high cost to following me. But you've got to come as you are. Here's what's true of our church right here. We have the potential of becoming a whole church of older brothers. A whole church of people who say, we've always been the ones here doing the right thing. We never get a party. We could begin to grow and see our Father not as generous and gracious because new sinners are being found and welcomed into our community and we all celebrate them. And we're sitting there as a collective church going, oh, I never get that stuff. God's stingy with me. We can be a whole church of people who are there doing the sorts of things that look like sonship, but there isn't really a reunified sense about that. Or, isn't this a great title? We could be a prodigal, friendly church. We could be a place where over and over and over again we find ourselves rejoicing and partying at the very same things that the heavens rejoice and party. That each and every soul, each and every person is so worth it to the Father that them being found, them being restored, them being healed, them being brought in and received by Jesus is cause for us to stop what we're doing and give unreasonable parties for that person. Don't you want to be the second kind of church? I do. We have people in our community who are better at saying, but don't stay as you are. Hear me really clearly. We need you in our community. But some of you in this church are really loud. Your first go-to thought is always just come. Come as you are. Don't try to get yourself cleaned up. Don't try to get yourself bound. That's nonsense. Come as you are. Come as you are. Hear me, you people. We need that voice loud in this community. It will guard us from becoming um, perfect too soon. There's coming a day when we're going to be perfectly righteous, always making the right choice. Until that process... Are we sinners saved by grace? Yes, but here's our real identity. We are saints who still struggle with sin. We're saints. We're in. But if we don't stay close, closely tied to our own lost story, our own found and reunited story, then we will, we will struggle. Let me have the band come on up right now. Let me close with this one thought. We are, as a church, on a mission to turn strangers into neighbors 
And by God's grace to turn some of those neighbors into family. And you are invited and needed to accomplish that mission. You want to turn strangers into neighbors? Anyone can do that. The common grace of God says any decent human being can just do that. You're a stranger, now you're a neighbor. But we're praying by God's grace that God would turn some neighbors into family. And that is, that's what I'm giving my life toward. That's what I'm inviting us as a church in to do. This is what January is all about. A beautiful day for the neighborhood. It's not that we just have a beautiful day here. It's that it would spill out. We're blessed to be a blessing to others. I have a whole bunch of things on what I think would be prompts to be growing in the art of neighboring. Instead of getting to any of that, I want to end this morning with this. I think the fundamental best thing we can do as a church is to really get in touch with our own lostness and the way God found us. Otherwise, all of our neighboring will be self-effort. It will devolve into us loving them, not because God first loved us, but rather it will be effort. And that's going to sour very quickly. So your community questions are thick and thorough. There's a lot in there. It lingers on, let's weekly, let's daily remember our own lostness. Stay in touch with what breaks God's heart. Stay in touch with the value of one coin, one sheep, one son or daughter. Let's join in with what he's doing. We pray. God, thank you so much for your grace to us. Thank you for showing us your love for sinners. God, thank you that you have given us a new name in Christ. God, thank you that you restore broken things. God, the loss that we've suffered, the loss that we have caused in other people, is cause for us to be broken and humbled before you. It's also a reason for us to come, not just as a one-time salvation experience, but for an ongoing relationship with you. God, that we would keep clear accounts before you, that we would receive your cleansing that we would receive your forgiveness. God, we love you. Amen.